Hey guys, Steve here, I'm Potent Ponics. Today we're going to talk about growing with fishes. Growing with fishes. <clears throat> Welcome, 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 everybody. Sorry, a bit of a video glitch there. Um, welcome to the episode 327 of the Growing With Fishes podcast. We have a really great episode. One of my favorite YouTubers, uh, Simple Scott from Simple Tech is here today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Oh, yeah. Super excited to have you guys uh, as, um, and, uh, and have, your, have you with us today. Um, I actually forgot to pull up the website real quick. So before we get started, it's been a bit of a week here. I am in the middle of moving tomorrow, so I apologize, guys, for being a little discombobulated today. Um, be sure to check out our Aquaponic Cannabis Masterclass. Uh, Marty and I have a huge new update we'll be adding to the class here in about uh, a month or so. Um, we're just finishing editing up all the new, new info. Um, tons of great new info on Korean natural farming, especially natural farming uh, on the nitrogen side, as well as new pest control stuff, a huge overhaul to the pest control section with a bunch of great new information that I've been working on here in Thailand, um, new insect guides, new disease guides uh, on top of what's already in the class. So be sure to check that out over apmjclass.com. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out the sec uh, third annual virtual aquaponic cannabis conference that we held two weeks ago. Uh, we have a ton of incredible information on there, which you guys can watch in full. We have 12 hours each day. Um, which you can watch in, in its entirety, or uh, you can check out the edited down videos as I upload them each week uh, in the one hour format, if that's something else that you prefer. Well, thanks a lot for joining us today, Scott. I know uh, you are certainly one of the, the best YouTubers out there when it comes to uh, people learning how to set up their own facility at home on a homestead or, or at a smaller commercial facility. Um, oh, I got your video playing there in the background. Um, uh, he's a ton of really good videos on climate control, uh, greenhouse design, you know, uh, underground thermal systems, um, any type of, you know, all different types of heat exchangers, uh, different equipment reviews, and all kinds of great stuff that's kind of more cutting edge and stuff that you don't really see a lot of these wonderful in-depth guide videos that, uh, you know, certainly in the cannabis community, we don't have a lot of people putting out this kind of content. So it's really nice to, to talk to someone like, um, like Scott today about uh, people from the agricultural side of things that aren't necessarily cannabis people, but can provide a ton of wonderful information to the people of, uh, on our side of the fence. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you again for having me. As you said, like I, I'm not big on information for you for the aquaponics side. I'm more into the structures and heating and cooling of the structures. And as you said, we do agriculture, but as far as I'm concerned, cannabis is agriculture. The structures and the, the things that we look at in building uh, buildings to grow in work fine for growing tomatoes, cannabis, or anything else out there. So, I mean, it all transfers over to what's there. And if you look at any of our comments, we filled with people from your industry asking questions on how to do these things. So, so how did you get started with your, um, uh, with your YouTube channel and wanting to kind of get this information out there for people on, on how to do things a little more sustainably? Um, I think it was about seven years ago. I was just sniffing around doing some research and I came across that. Well, well, what was bothering me was the quality of food I was eating. I mean, I like to have a tasty tomato and the tomatoes we were getting in the store here were horrible. They had no taste. They were woody. And my dad was a big tomato grower in his garden. He never had greenhouses, but his tomatoes were 
fabulous. And I couldn't understand why the stuff I got in the store didn't compare. So I started running with the idea of like, he only had tomatoes for two months of the year because of our climate. And I wanted to grow them year round. And I started thinking about it along the idea of a business. And I've just sort of been kicking that idea. And I looked at some things that were out there that were building um, tomato and lettuce and, and four season structures for Manitoba. The problem is the structures they were building were coming in at 100 and $150 a square foot. They were fantastic. But with what you can grow and what you can make, I, I, one of the big things I look at on my channel is ROI or return on investment, how fast you can get your money back. And when you're looking at 100 $150 a square foot, you're paying a mortgage for 15, 20 years to pay this back. So you're basically working for the bank. And I have always kind of run my businesses along the idea of wanting to pay off everything in a year or two, three at an absolute max. So in my mind, I needed to have some sort of a structure that could heat and cool um, in our climate in Manitoba, which is extreme. Like right now it's minus 30 without wind chill. It's minus 40 with the wind chill outside right now. <laughs> That's why I'm inside. <laughs> um, I, I started thinking along the idea, is it possible to build a structure that's in the $10, $20 a square foot range to build it? And as I looked into it, it became more and more feasible and possible. Um, some of the reasons are greenhouses, oh, and this all depends upon where you live, of course, but they don't tend to look at the structures, especially if they're on like a small commercial or a personal size, in the same way from a building inspector as they would in a large commercial one. So I look at things, you know, someone that wants a side job and can work, you know, have a business on their own um, that wants a thousand, two thousand square foot greenhouse. I mean, up to about 10. As soon as you start getting bigger than that, you start really have to go like even when you start getting over two thousand square feet, you really got to have much more expensive structures and you got to meet all the building codes of your area. But if you're just sticking up a, a cheap greenhouse in the back of one or two thousand square feet or less, sometimes they view them as more like a tent. And you can get away with more, not everywhere, but in a lot of places. So that's how I look at it. And I, I seem to have a large following of people that not only want tomatoes and lettuce and peppers like I'm doing, but it wasn't something I was looking for at the beginning, but I wound up with a huge following of people from the cannabis industry as well, because uh, the, what they need for growing isn't all that different from what you need to grow tomatoes. And uh, it just went from there. That's awesome. So maybe on that note, is one of my questions I had for you that I'd written down is, is what kind of is a good entry level? Hey, I'm an enthusiast. I just want to get started and, and growing in a, a greenhouse in my backyard. I have a little bit of money to, to, to build something um, to put together, you know, some kind of rudimentary thing. What, what is a good kind of entry level option? Well, I mean, obviously, it's going to depend upon where you live and what you're allowed to do by your zoning and, and things like that. And your budget. Budget is probably the most important thing to look at. I have a dome greenhouse in my backyard. Um, I scrounged a lot of the materials for it. I don't think I even have $2,000 into it. And, you know, it's over, it's around 200 square feet. It's four season. It can run year round. Um, it's got venting in it. It's got, uh, well, right now I'm heating it with my outside wood boiler, but I'm going to add other options in the future. I want to experiment with some compost heating as well as some uh, geothermal, different types of geothermal heating to heat it. Um, you know, I, I look at, you know, double air blown poly on it as one of the cheapest ways to cover a structure that's solid and good and adds insulation to something. Um, everything just grows from there. I mean, if you look at the channel, there's so many different options I look at. Now, I've maybe done 15, 20% of what's on the channel. 
but I know, or I've talked to people that have done everything else that's on there for different options. And once again, it's, it's, it's a learning experiment as you go forward with what I've done. And I've, I've picked up and learned a lot and I've met some really incredible people going forward with this on the channel. Sorry, I was trying to get my co-host connected here. Um, no worries. Uh, what was the questions I had here? So um, what are some of the more um, common ways that people climb to control their greenhouses? I know I'm a big fan of gap systems and uh, solar water heating systems uh, for heating greenhouses. I know when uh, we, we built a combination solar water heater and, and gap system uh, in uh, Colorado, I managed to run a 30 by um, uh, 50 by 18 foot high greenhouse on just you know, 82 pounds of propane for a whole winter. I know that you've done things that are far beyond that. I'd love to hear about some of the different concepts that, that you've worked with when it comes to climate control. Well, I, I think the one word that summarizes all of it is the word that you say combining systems. I, I mean, no one system is going to be best for everything. So the idea of being a purist and having you know, just a GAT system, you're going to run into some, well, depending on your climate, of course, once again, in Manitoba, we're extreme. And if you have just a GAT system, it's not enough. So you, you would need, for my climate, you would need to boost it somehow, whether it's solar or whether it's, you know, um, a compost pile or an outside wood boiler or a wood stove or any of a dozen different options to heat it. Um, not only the idea of backup systems, I like the idea of because you can lose your crop if something fails. But if the weather gets even more extreme, sometimes you need both systems to work for heating and or cooling. Oh, absolutely. I know uh, we ran a combination of solar water heaters, the gas system and a backup propane, you know, in case everything else wasn't working or it had a problem or a failure or something. Um, so just like you're saying, I, I can't agree with that more. Uh, you know, stacking systems is, is what's going to get you there. And hey, if you get five degrees here and 10 degrees there and three degrees here, suddenly you have a lot more you know, than you realize yeah. in terms of thermal difference. You know, and I think that's really where, exactly. where the critical part of it is. So what have been some of the more successful things that, you know, you tested something and ended up being, or maybe researched something and found out it was much better uh, than it, than you thought it was, or, uh, and then uh, you know, after that, maybe the, the, the inverse of that. Um, just trying to think off the top of my head here. One of the biggest things that I found in building, building greenhouses was the double air inflated poly. I mean, everybody loves the idea of polycarbonate and it's strong and it's great and it's, but it's expensive. And I mean, of course, glass is more expensive than that. But the idea of having an air fan in between two sheets of plastic, it's like a thick saran wrap. And it gives you the same, like, although it's thicker, I mean, you're looking at something that could be upwards of a foot thick or more uh, between the two sheets, but it's giving you a, close to an R2, which is the same as you're going to get off of really good double pane glass or triple pane poly. That blew me away for how little it costs to cover a greenhouse with it and people go oh it's only going to last three or three or four years yeah but the poly's 10 times the price and the poly over 10 15 years is going to start yellowing i'd rather just replace the plastic and have something that's you know clearer and newer and getting better sunlight coming through it so i think that's probably one of the few things that's blown me away the next one in regards to heating was radiant floors i put a radiant floor in my greenhouse and i always was of the opinion I mean, I had seen radiant floors in houses on tons of, <laughs> excuse me, tons of garages and uh, shops and that kind of thing. And it's always been in poured concrete. And it never really occurred to me that I could build a radiant floor 
with sidewalk blocks and I can get them generally cheaper for free. And I have a video that details how I did that myself and it works virtually the same way as a poured concrete radiant floor. And a poured concrete radiant floor is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. But when you start pouring concrete and doing that right, you're looking at big dollars. I mean, even 200 square feet, you're looking at thousands of dollars to do that right. Whereas I achieved the same thing with sidewalk blocks that I got for next to nothing. A um, little bit of PEX, which is, you know, 100 bucks or something like that to do enough PEX for 200 square feet. I got sand. Uh, I just, you know, from my beach and my and, and local area and it bang. Uh, I was able to get insulation underneath it. Um, I scrounged that. Hey, you found the video. Nice. I love the images. So I scrounged the in insulation underneath from what happens is a lot of places when they're tearing down commercial buildings, you can get um, lots of three and four inch styrofoam type insulation and cheap because a four by eight foot styrofoam insulation sheet can cost you $60 to $80 now. And if you're buying it used, you can wind up in the range of five bucks. That's massive. And if you're putting it underneath, you know, um, your greenhouse and putting sidewalk blocks on top of it with some sand, what do you care if it's new or used as long as the insulation works? So as you can see from the pictures, I that sand on top of that, I have insulation below that with a sheet of plastic. And then uh, I ran the, as you can see, I ran the PEX. Um, another thing I, I learned the hard way with PEX, and this is a big one if you're doing anything like this, is to buy something called Alumapex. It's maybe 10% more in cost. It has a little sheet of aluminum in it. And what happens is it's incredibly easy to bend, but it stays in the position you want to bend it to. And I've tried to do this stuff with regular PEX, and it's a nightmare, especially if you're just putting it on the ground in sand like this. But when you use a Lumapex, which is the white PEX you can see there in the image that we have, thousand times easier so uh, little things like that that you learn as you go forward on how to do this stuff with an incredible roi like with the return on investment to do this that floor barely cost me 200 dollars. i think the most expensive thing in that floor was the pex i mean the insulations maybe 100 150 bucks uh the pex was 100 bucks not even it was 150 bucks for the pex but i only used half of it uh, the other thing is probably the pump, the taco pump to run the uh, the water through the lines is about a hundred bucks. So maybe 300 bucks, I guess, when I think about it. Um, <clears throat> those are things that have blown me away and how cheap it's possible to do them. If you think something through and you look it up and, and find out rather than doing just what your local carpenter tells you, this is how it's done. Oh, that's awesome and, and definitely a great way. And you can combine those types of solar heaters for, for the floor with both solar or with, with a gas or, or other heat Oh, sources. absolutely. It'll work with five, six, seven different types of heat sources. Compost heat, it'll work with a wood boiler, it'll work with a electric water boilers or solar, all of that stuff that you mentioned. Even You can even do it with uh, geothermal if you use a solar boosted geothermal. Yeah, that, that's really great. Um, can you tell us more about geothermal? Because I think a lot of people when they, and I've worked with this quite a bit in Colorado, but um, when people think of geothermal, a lot of people think <clears> of like hot springs and things like that. They don't really think of using the, the heat from the earth. Um, can you kind of give people a little bit of a breakdown on geothermal heating when it comes to greenhouses? Well, if you have hot springs in your area, you're very lucky. You're going to get a lot of cheap, free, incredible heat. I'm not that lucky. I mean, if you start digging down in most areas, uh, after you get five to eight feet, there's going to be a fairly stable temperature in the ground year round. Um, where I live, and it's not, remember, I'm in 
you know, I'm close to the polar bears here. Uh, in the winter, you're going to get four or five degrees Celsius if you dig down eight feet, but that's when it's 30 degrees outside in the middle of winter. <laughs> in the summer, it might go up to 10 or 12. Um, if you start going south of the border, you know, in places like um, Green, in, I'm trying to think of the state that he's in, but he's in the Bible Belt, uh, Greenhouse in the Snow. He digs down for geothermal and he's running, you know, 14, 15 degrees Celsius. We're not that lucky. But five degrees Celsius for most geothermal systems that we're used to hearing about, that heat houses, uh, what they do is they add a heat pump to it, which will take that temperature and multiply it. So basically, they're just adding electric heat to it. That's a fancy way to do that and more efficient, um, which is great. Uh, but when you start using a liquid system that has a heat pump, um, you're adding a lot of cost in electricity as well as you're adding a lot of cost in heat pump. As my channel name is Simple Tech, one of the things we started investigating and looking at was how do we boost the temperature in the ground and using the ground as a thermal battery that can store heat from even seasonally over the summer. I came across something that absolutely blew me away years ago. Um, I don't know if you've heard of this residential area in Alberta called Drake Landing. They've got about 55 homes. And what they did was they dug a big borehole in the ground and they ran all kinds of um, tubes through it, like PECs, but higher end PECs. And they put solar thermal collectors on all the garages. So all summer and all year round, what they do is they pump water into the, the, the roofs of the garages that have these solar thermal collectors on them, and they fire them back into the ground. There it is, that's Drake Landing. And it stores the heat. Um, is it the most efficient system? No, but remember you're using free heat. So it stores the heat all summer and they're able to actually achieve 99 to 100% of their heat now from this system. And people say, well, yeah, you're storing it in the ground you're using geothermal. Well, it, it is geothermal to some aspect because you're taking heat from the ground, but it's not the, what they're doing is they're turbocharging the ground or they're using the ground as a battery. And that started to, that really got to me thinking that's a good idea. And I had seen the reverse of that. My dad was in the gravel business when I grew up. And sometimes, you know, they would get into gravel piles where they had worked on stuff in the winter. And in the middle of July, 30 plus degrees Celsius out there digging into this and they'd find snow, which means the ground insulated that snow through to the summer. And I started thinking, well, maybe the ground can insulate and hold this. Now, the way geo Drake Landing works is by size. They don't have a lot of insulation on the borehole. When you dumb it down to individual, uh, whereas it's a greenhouse or your house or your garage or something like that you're going to need, there's a lot more leakage because you don't have the size. So in some of the things I've been playing with and running with is the idea of going into the ground and insulating a big section of the ground and then putting the dirt back over top of it. Um, this allows you to keep the heat a lot longer and collect the heat from the summer and use it in the winter. Now people go, oh, you're going to lose a lot. Okay, well, if I can keep 20% of the heat from the summer, that's a lot of heat, <laughs> you know, because the summer is here. We got 15 to 18 hours of daylight in the summer. That's a lot of sunshine. Um, if you can keep 20% of that, you're giggling. So then I started looking at insulation systems. And of course, the first way I went was finding used um insulation board which uh you know from commercial buildings and things like that but obviously there's only so much you can get of that and it's not available in all areas etc cetera, etc cetera. so then i started playing with the idea of aircrete and aircrete i can actually make 
the same price or cheaper than the used styrofoam boards to insulate all kinds of things, whether it's, you know, you're insulating your north walls or you're insulating in the ground um, to hold your heat better. Uh, it, it's a fantastic material that most people, when they look at aircrete, look at it as a building material, a uh, structural material. And I didn't see it as anything really fantastic for that. What I saw aircrete as, and, and for my purposes in looking at it, was insulation. So making it even flimsier from the standpoint of a building material, but having that fantastic insulative property in aircrete, and you can make it so cheap because insulation isn't cheap. So, I mean, there's some things along that aspect, I guess, if that helps. Sorry, I had my mic muted. Definitely yeah. something that I think a lot of people need to focus on a little more, especially with the larger scale design. Just like you're saying, the bigger you get, the, the better it works. Uh, yes. Just like with an aquaponic system. So, uh, But like I say, to, to compensate for that, when you get into small systems, you need more insulation. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I found, which is a great resource for um, uh, getting that cheap source of insulation, when they redo the roofs of flat top buildings, Kmart, Walmart, office buildings, they have that thick foam layer on the top of the, the thing that they put the tar paper down on. Yeah, yeah. That you can often get in huge sheets for, for free and just pull it out of the dumpster when they're redoing this. Yeah, that's so some that of what I'm talking about. And it's great insulation. Yep. You know, it works fantastic. And like I say, when you buy that stuff, you can be looking at easily sixty to eighty dollars a four by eight sheet. So, uh, on the inverse, did you find anything that maybe was was nowhere near as good of a, a thermal gain as you you thought it might be? That that's a good question. Um, I don't know off the top of my head. Um, I'm trying to think. What didn't work? Uh, not so much for insulation. I mean, there was something structurally that I did that didn't work, um, that I had big failures with. Ins insulatively wise, most of the things I played with, I was pleasantly surprised that they worked better than I thought they would. Um, what, what about structurally? I know that when we tried the uh, composting systems on our north wall, um, it, while it absolutely provided a, a ton of heat at certain times, it was very inconsistent and unpredictable in terms of uh, being a reliable constant heat source, uh, at least for, for maybe maybe we designed it wrong or had the, the leaf material wrong. I'm not quite sure what, what the error was, but um, that ended up being something that we couldn't rely on. So we stopped utilizing it. Um, is there anything that you, like you just mentioned uh, on the design side, maybe something that you wouldn't have done a certain way or wouldn't redo that uh, you know, on a design or something like that? Well, um one of the things I, I, I started playing with, I mean, when I built my greenhouse, I used metal electric conduit. I got a really good deal on it from Home Depot. So I bought a pile of it and it worked fantastic in making a dome. Um, it wasn't all that thick and the, the, the tensile strength of the structure, the, the, how strong it is, absolutely blew, blew me away. I mean, I'm six foot three and over 300 pounds. I can hang off of my dome. It's, it's, it's that strong. But when I built it in a Quonset type, structure it was garbage i mean i've, I've got to take it down it, it, it wouldn't even hold itself up and you know i i followed a guy online paul robinson and he did amazing work with domes using metal using wood um if you want to look at a dome i'd suggest it but from a commercial standpoint i'm actually more of a fan of a quonset hut type structure because of some of the things that you can do in our climates and the big one actually probably the most important thing well, there's two important things actually. Well, the first off is that it's much easier to get the plastic to fit it 
uh, because everything's sold for that. Um, and you want to buy what's out there in the market so you can compete against other people and get the cheapest materials that you can. But the second one was to be able to put a thermal blanket at night in a dome is a nightmare. But in a Quonset hut, it's actually fairly simple. And this is one of the things that I'm, I wish I could do in my dome because I, I know other friends that have done this. And the amount of insulation you get out of a thermal blanket is phenomenal. Um, you know, when the sun's not shining, they roll the blanket down and it's just like you in your bed and diving under the covers. It gives you a lot more warmth and keeping that heat is key with a greenhouse because greenhouses lose a lot of heat through the transparent area. And if you can stop that or take an R2 and bring it up to an R5, that's massive. So, um, that's probably one of the biggest ones is, is the structural stuff that I've looked at that didn't work. The other one is the fans. Um, for exhausting, you need a lot more CFM than you think you do. Um, it's amazing how fast these greenhouses heat up. And I found, you know, using multiple fans along my base and one or two up high, I still couldn't get enough hot air out in the summer on a 30 degree day when the sun was blasting on it. So don't underestimate how much air in a hot climate. I mean, you obviously realize this in Thailand, <laughs> you know, um, even here in Manitoba, we get some 30 degree days with full sun and they're long days with a lot of sun. That's a lot of heat to exhaust. So oh, yeah. There's a few things. Do you want to talk? In fact, that was one of the questions I had for you is, was tops of greenhouse design. Now I know that um, many greenhouses in the United States or, or in North America, I guess is probably a better way to put it. I know you're in Canada um, uh, are, are um, designed as a full hoop right? A hoop house, or it's just ha a half circle above the ground. In the tropics, you usually do an offset where one side is higher than the other, and then you have a bay that you can open and dump the heat out, or you run an umbrella top where you have both sides that can dump out. Like in, in Thailand, it's too hot. In the middle of the summer, the humidity is high. We can't do wet walls. We can't do any of the normal easy ways to clean, uh, cool the greenhouse. So we have a, an umbrella top that allows us to dump heat mm -hmm. off of both sides of the greenhouse at the top, the breeze. When we have a good wind coming, you know, even five or 10 mile an hour wind, that brings a good amount of breeze right into the greenhouse and helps keep that air exchange going. So um, what are some of the other things that you found? I know you have a bunch of a whole uh, bunch of different videos on this topic on your YouTube channel. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the differences in the greenhouse designs when it comes to, um, you know, climate? Well, what you're talking about on the top there, I absolutely love that for the summertime. I mean, to be able to vent out like that along a Quonset Hut style greenhouse is fantastic. I mean, I've looked at some of those designs and it's the way to go. I, I You absolutely nailed it there. Some of the other things we looked at is the idea of air conditioning. And I mean, there's a few things you can do for air conditioning. One of them that's actually fairly cheap, but it's depending upon climate, of course, is uh, having the, the water wall where you run fans through... Um, a material that stays wet and you're getting a humidity coming through your greenhouse but that there's a phase change that happens when gas goes from water to liquid and it grabs a bunch of the heat out and it actually works eight to 12 degrees celsius you can cool a greenhouse down by using just water if you have an unlimited amount of water and you have 60 percent humidity or less now in thailand i don't know if that's really going to work but in some desert areas where you do have access to water this is something that you know, it is worth looking at. Another one in higher humidity areas is uh, one of my videos talks about a liquid geothermal system where it just takes the coolness from the ground. 
Once again, though, this depends upon how cool your ground is. Um, you can run that liquid up to a radiator, run a fan through it, and you've got a cooler, uh, whatever the ground temperature is, is, is blowing out of your radiator into your greenhouse for just the cost of pumping some water. And I mean, taco pumps run at what, 50 watts. So I mean, it's not a huge amount of electricity plus a fan running through a radiator. So I mean, you might be 100, 150 watts maximum to get the equivalent of what a large air conditioner could do. So those are some of the things we look at uh, specialty-wise in cooling. Um, there isn't a lot of options in high humidity areas. I mean, the, the geothermal system works, but once again, in Thailand, it, it's a good question because I don't know how warm your ground is. I mean, obviously it's going to be cooler than the outside air, but you may only get 10 degrees difference Celsius. Yeah, our, our ground <laughs> temperature here is 70 or 72 degrees Fahrenheit. So yeah, it yeah. does not get. But, cold. but what's your air temperature? One hundred and ten. Yeah, our our air temperature uh, during the day is between eighty six and ninety two. At this time of year, during yeah, the see? summer, it's like ninety five to one hundred and two. Um, I couldn't and, live in that. Uh, our nighttime, temperature, <laughs> our nighttime temperatures are much colder or much warmer. So our you know it gets down yeah. to maybe sixty degrees on a cold night here at this time of year, and then on the summertime, you're looking at mid seventies, upper seven or lower seventies. You know, so right. it never gets very cold ever. But that being said, you've still got a 20 degree difference there on average between the ground oh, temperature yeah. and the air temperature. So that they do work. It's just, you know, if I do the same thing here when it's, you know, 110 degrees Fahrenheit or 30, 35 degrees Celsius, I've got a fantastic air conditioner because my ground's only get sitting at 10 degrees Celsius in the summer. So one of the things you said based upon your location is huge. And it's something that I really learned as I go forward, especially from a lot of people that were commenting on my stuff. Um, things that you think are available everywhere aren't. One of the big ones I learned um, when dissecting Earthships was I couldn't understand why they would um, put so much focus on rainwater and recycling the water because we have such easy access to wells here. I mean, you dig under 100 feet here and you've got a fantastic well that's going to put out 50 gallons a minute virtually anywhere all around here but that doesn't exist everywhere and if you don't have that water becomes a big issue because you need to get it you need to grab it and early on i didn't know that and i mean obviously the comments on my videos woke me up to that idea and i started learning about that but i mean one of the things I came across was people with the idea of earthships, which is a whole man of greenhouse, would want to do incorporate that into an area where there's a good wells. And I'd look at them like, what are you, crazy? If you have a well that you can put in at a reasonable price, don't piss around with this crap. Just put the well in. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's where I'm at. If you don't have the water, yes, then that's another system that you can look at so to go back to one of the main tenets of what i've done from my channel from the beginning is i believe in roi or return on investment so i look at the best system for the best price that you can put out there to get a return on what you're putting in so even if it's at a small scale like a, an individual cannabis grower that maybe has a small market and wants to make 30 50 or 80 100 grand a year extra or something like that off of a thousand or two thousand square foot greenhouse you don't want to pay hundred thousand dollars to build that greenhouse when you can do it for 15 if that makes sense absolutely, so that, that, absolutely. that's what we've done and and i've had a really good luck too with hydronic cooling so basically taking groundwater pumping it up running it through the floor and then pumping it back down into the well on a return 
and we managed to make the green. In fact, Robbie and I did a <clears> test run on the greenhouses and it got so cold there. It took two days for that slab to heat back up to the temperature that we wanted it. Cause it was way, way too cold. So we had to dial back how much flow rate we were putting through that. That's awesome. And you know what? That's actually something I should look at is hydronic, hydraulic, hydronic. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that cooling. Um, I've actually been looking at that to do a video. It's, it's a fantastic idea, but once again, it's only available on people that have the groundwater in certain areas. And that's that's been something that I've had to wake up to in my little world here in Manitoba. I mean, as much as I have traveled, um, you have to realize not everything we have available, not just for climate and what's there, but also for materials that are available. One of the beautiful things in my channel is, you know, I often get to talk to people from Mongolia and Finland and Thailand, like yourself and, and all over the world. And, you know, they wake me up to some of the realities that they got to deal with. Mongolia is a very interesting one. I talked to a few guys extensively there and they're running on almost identical climate to what we have here. But the issue there is what they have available for materials. And yes, they have, you know, all the Chinese materials readily available and going forward with it, but not the same everything's not exactly the same and obviously they're not working on they're not how do i say this they're not as rich as a lot of us are and what we want to put in so they're extremely excited about the idea of doing stuff as cheap as possible using recycled materials or using materials that they can get that you know one example is the concrete floor they don't want to pour a concrete floor because it's thousands and thousands of dollars but if they can do something like what i did with sidewalk blocks that someone a building says throwing away and and, and get the same result for their greenhouse they're they're all in <clears throat> so oh yeah that's like definitely the biggest biggest challenge working in places outside the u.s is simply figuring out your supply chain and, and getting the right resources that you needed to, to do the things that you're trying to build that's huge and you know what the sad part is you often find the resources you need after you've done what you want to do <laughs> it happens a lot but um for anybody wanting to start up, I mean, obviously you need a structure to control it in North America, other than, you know, the Northern States and Canada, or you're only going to have an extremely small season in which you can do something. So if you want to grow inside, this is an option, um, but you're going to be using non-natural light. And one of the things, I don't know what the difference is in cannabis, but I've found myself for food, the more you use actual sunlight, the better it tastes. And I'm not against boosting, sun, like, because in Canada, there's, in the winter, there's days when we get five hours of sunlight, and that's it, like, that's where we're in right now. So I'm not against the idea of using um, LED lighting to boost some of that, so you've got it. But the more natural sunlight you can get, I taste it. And, you know, it's not that I want to be a hippie having everything wonderful and fantastic and green. I'm a fat guy, and I want it to taste good. And I just find it tastes better the more natural you can get things. And I, I, I'm kind of of the opinion the pot might be the same way. Oh, yeah. No, uh, the sun definitely causes a better, more increased SAR response for the plants. You have the UV spectrum and all these other things that are, you know, present in the sun that you don't you know, really have that full spectrum with, with artificial lighting. And it certainly makes a difference in the secondary metabolites that the plant's producing to, to protect itself. So absolutely. And we call them flavonoids and terpenes and, you know, cannabinoids and other things. But uh you know, at the end of the day, the plant's just trying to be happier and healthier yeah. and defend itself from the environment. So we just happen to like some of those compounds. The other so thing is there I anything? Found... Sorry, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say the other thing is, is I found a lot of the plants that we deal with kind of like to be stressed a bit. 
So if you have a perfect climate control, you don't get the results that you want. You want to have some fluctuation in it. Uh, the plants can actually react to and fight against and it tended to get better sugars and better taste. And I'm assuming cannabis may work on the same basis. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, we've, we've done whole episodes on how to, how to stress the plants out in a, in a healthy way. So I uh, couldn't agree more. Um, we kind of touched on a little bit of, uh, you know, newer ideas or things that are kind of in the forefront. Um, what are some of the new ideas you're hoping to explore this year on your channel? Um, once again, it, it depends upon what becomes available to me and how busy I get. I don't think I'm going to have the busiest year for my RV park this year, which is great because I'm sold out and I'm waiting on uh, my next run of electricity, underground electricity to be put in. And after the pandemic, our local company is backed up. So I probably got to wait two years, which means I can focus on doing stuff greenhouse wise, which is last year. I didn't have that option because we I took some time off because I was so busy with the RV park. What I'd like to actually get into experiment wise is I'd really like to try some compost heating, having a large compost pile. Um, I want to pick up a, uh, I think a chipper, I guess is what they call them, but I want one that I can stick on the back of my tractor um, as well as I need to get a dumping trailer. I've been renting them. I got to buy one, but that would allow me to make 30 to 50 or 80 yard piles of compost that I can set up to heat my greenhouse as one of the multiple heating methods maybe have it heat the floor because what i've seen from a lot of these compost piles is you can run a sustained 140 degree fahrenheit which is perfect for a radiant floor from a greenhouse and that's something i'd really like to do going forward the next one is one of my more recent videos um, was along the lines of a mini split heat pump and using a geothermal air tube to feed it. Mini split heat pumps tend to fail in super cold temperatures, minus 20 or, or colder. And even those that do work in the colder temperatures use an enormous amount of electricity and cost a fair bit of money to run. If you have it so that you're using air tubes, which is just weeping tile running to the ground, pushing air into a box, you can have outside temperatures of minus 20, minus 30, minus 40, but inside temperatures of the box where you're mini split is is only going to be the ground temperature of five degrees celsius and it's going to cost a lot less to heat your house and or greenhouse to do that so that's something i'm looking at as well as i'm looking at possibly doing a uh solar boosted geothermal um battery and using aircrete i've got to get a little more experimentation with aircrete down so these are some of the things i'm going to go forward with um, as well as I have what I like to call filler videos that I put in, where it's just different things that I look at and experiment with that people have talked about and they want more information on. So we get into that and we just simply discuss it. Um, I guess that's the the, the the tune of what the channel is. I, I don't like to get into super, super long videos. I mean, the majority of my videos are in about the 10 minute mark. So um, people say, oh, you can convey that information a lot cheaper but a lot of that has to do with the revenue in youtube and how it works um, if you're running eight to ten minutes you get extra ads in there uh, your videos get longer watch time they get pushed out more from video like a lot of my videos i could probably explain in two minutes but i'd make 150 amount of money from my ad revenue <laughs> if i did that so i actually have to stretch them out um so that gives you an idea of what i'm looking forward at in the next year most of it is structure based i mean i do some growing stuff but a lot of it runs around theory and the ideas of how to make the most affordable 
mid-size greenhouse structures so people can grow whatever they want to grow in it in their backyard or on their farm or something like that. If you want to look at 10, 20, 30,000 square foot structures, I'm probably not the guy to talk to. But if you want to put up something, you know, 200 to 2,000 square feet, there's a lot of good information on my channel. Well, that's awesome. I know you touched a little bit earlier about Earthships. Um, uh, have you worked with Earthships at all? Or is that just something that you've researched? It's definitely something that I've also been interested in as well. Um, I actually did uh, an interview with a guy that had done a lot of work with Earthships recently on my channel. It's one of my more recent videos. Um, I haven't worked directly with workships, Earthships, although I've done a lot of research and watching what's in them. There, to me, there's good and there's bad to Earthships. I mean, Earthships really play on the idea of, of filling these tires up with dirt. And once again, sure, this is cheapening before, then you get them in there. But people tend to underestimate the cost of labor. And if you want to start filling up hundreds of tires with clay and hammering them in, this is an enormous amount of work that you can achieve with earth bags or, or many other methods. Like the last guy I was talking to, he does it all with earth bags. And he, he had actually built earth ships and going forward with it. And he had the same thing that I was said. He says, yeah, I did a bunch of tires and then I just quit. <laughs> it's just too much work. Uh, you know, if you've got a gaggle of hippies hanging around you, that's great. And you can, you know, put them all to work, but trying to keep them working is another thing. <laughs> but so it, it comes back down to simple technology. I mean, sure, tires look simple, but that's been my biggest, how do I say, my biggest complaint about Earthships is the idea of the way they fill the tires in them. But a lot of the technology in the Earthships, I do like. I like the idea of having a greenhouse attached to your house. I like the way they're designed, like a Quonset type idea uh, that, you know, the greenhouse heats up. I like the way that they, you know, use earth um, for cooling and heating. I think you could add to some of those systems, don't get me wrong, um, to make it a little more efficient and automated. I mean, a lot of greenhouses or um, earth ships are not massively automated. And in the world we live in today, you don't want to spend two hours of your day dealing with yeah, how you keep your your house or your greenhouse hot or cold all day. You want it just automated so that you don't have to think about this. Um, I think that's one of the failings of a lot of Earthships, but it could be fixed in, in many ways. Uh, you know, automatic vents that, you know, work with beeswax, that kind of stuff. Those are great ideas that people need to do more of with earthships uh, in my mind a lot of them just want to do it all manually and which is great if you spend your whole day in your house and that's all you got to do but that's not most people so uh, there's a lot of good in earthships uh the thermal masses um the way they recycle water is almost genius uh but once again that depends upon what you have available for water in your area i mean if you have ample wells that are relatively under 200 feet in depth that you can get out. You don't need to do any of this stuff or waste your time on it. So there's pluses and minuses to Earthships. And that's that's the best way I can put it. There's a lot of technology in my like, and there's a lot of technology I think that is a waste of time. Absolutely. Sorry, I uh, my power just went out here while, uh, uh -oh. while we were talking. I uh, thankfully have a laptop and cell phone-based internet, so it doesn't affect the show at all, but uh, it's a little darker here, so I apologize. So I have a question for you on your aquaponics. I mean, you, you talk a lot about um, cannabis growing with aquaponics. I, uh, how do I put this? When I was single, my dating profile used to say, if you're not into seafood, this isn't going to work. 
So the fish that you're using in cannabis growing for aquaponics, can you eat them or are they just um, a nutrient-based biological organism? Oh, I'm sorry, I missed part of that question. You said, are they just a biological organism or it flipped out right before that? Or can you eat them? Oh, yeah, yeah. So we have customers that eat them. Uh, we have customers that raise them solely as a monetary source. It just depends on the customer. And then also the bigger factor is what is the legality of processing fish in the country that you're operating in? So in the United States, you cannot get a meat processing license and have a cannabis cultivation license on the same tax ID number in terms of properties. So if I have a cannabis facility there, I cannot have a, a meat slaughtering facility or meat processing facility on that same tax ID property. So I have to have the next door neighbor's property or have a third party property that I purchase that's offsite uh, to transfer it over to because um, the federal meat inspectors can't step foot on a schedule one facilities property. So um, it has to do with the feds. So in the United States, primarily it's almost exclusively a butterfly koi or tropical fish for resale because it's a much better you know dollar per inch gained um, than it is for things like uh, tilapia or you know perch or something like that. And also they can't kill the fish, so they can't make fillets or or monetize it in any kind of final form product. So I have to sell them whole on ice or live, which becomes a whole problem. So if they want to raise fish as trophy fish for people's uh, ponds, you know, they want to raise large bass or catfish or something for people's backyard ponds for their grandkids, that's fine. You can totally do that uh, and then sell them live to, to stock the pond. But you can't kill the fish on property, which is a, a weird legal loophole where I'm sure Congress had no thought about that when they made the law, but it ends up being this weird pigeonhole. And that's federal problem. in the states, I assume, not individual states yes. would have. Yeah, yeah, I don't so, know so, what that is in Canada. I wish I could tell you, but I don't have a clue. So in Canada, there's no problems. So in Canada, you can have an aquaponic cannabis facility. You can process the fish on site. In fact, I know people that do both salmon, tilapia, and yellow perch in, in Canada. So um, that's, that, that's not an all Canadian issue. Thailand, it's not a problem. Um, it's strictly a United States issue. In the United States, it makes way more sense to get a pet trade license and then just resell the fish as, as aquaculture you know, or pet trade fish. Um, it, it's much more profitable. So it comes down to legality being the biggest problem with that and not necessarily any kind of, you know, cleanliness issue or, or taste issue or, or meat quality issue at all. Yeah, yeah. So definitely a bizarre one and uh, certainly a, a, you know, legal oversight that I'm sure they didn't plan on. Um, we had a question from chat. Um, uh, what do you like better, plastic glass or poly? Um, I can tell you, at least from on my experience, poly is really good for areas where you have high amount of hail. So if you're in Oklahoma, you might want to consider investing in the poly on the upper port. But the sidewalls, you can totally save money and go with the plastic. But I'd love to hear your opinion on these different types of, of mediums. Oh, well, once again, it, it, there's a big issue regarding to cost and location. So, I mean, if you're in a high hail location, um, poly is fantastic because it bounces off. I mean, that, that's the beautiful thing about double air inflated poly and cost. Uh, polycarbonate um, is in my mind it's better because it's harder I mean if you have an animal issue coming into your greenhouse uh, whether it's from bears to wolves to rabbits to whatever they're not getting through polycarbonate or if they do they're just you know, maybe a bear can but the majority of the animals you're looking at are not going to get through polycarbonate and glass to be honest is the best by far but it's cost prohibitive. I mean, I look at some commercial structures when they build them out here and they do them in glass, but they're coming in at 130 to $150 a square foot. I mean, glass has almost no reduction in the amount of uh, sun's rays, even with two or three layers of it, you know, double and triple pane glass. But 
it gets very expensive. People go, oh, I'm going to use recycled glass, but they don't realize that it's not just the cost of the glass, it's the cost of the framing. And you have to have uh, substantial strong framing to put proper glass in place because of the amount of windows that you need for a greenhouse. So to answer your question, glass is best, but it's not used all the time because of the cost. Polycarbonate is great. Um, but once again, in super cold climates, depending on the poly and who made it, it can shatter. Uh, most don't, but you've got to be aware of what you're buying. Uh, there's all kinds of different manufacturers out there. Uh, poly, uh, poly meaning just straight plastic that's a double with a double air inflated fan. I, I'm not a big fan of single plastic. Um, I think you need to have the double. Um, it's incredibly strong if you have a fan on it. Um, I do recommend having a small backup battery system you can use uh, because the fans don't use a lot of electricity you can just use one of these computer backup uh, battery systems that'll run for four or five six hours depending on what your power issue is where you're at so that you know when power goes out it's often in a storm when the winds are high and you need the damn fan working for the double dairy inflated poly is so i mean invest 100 or 200 bucks and have a backup battery on that but i'm a fan of double air inflated poly and it's just because of cost Oh yeah, it certainly worked well for us in, in Colorado for sure. When I was to work at the aquaponic source, uh, it's definitely our, our our low budget go to for sure uh, when it comes to that. Um, if you guys have any other questions in chat, um, you know, post them up soon. Uh, I want to make sure we get to them. If you guys have any questions before we wrap up the show, um, let me see. We had one or two other questions here. Um, GAT systems. Um, so, have you done different designs of the geothermal yeah. underground? Um, I know that we did a test run with, with the aquaponics source, Robbie and I, and we did a V-shaped design, so interlocking Vs um, with what, one input and two outputs. Uh, and then we also tried the square design, like the, the more you know traditional grid square. Um, and I was kind of curious. Uh, I know we found the V-shaped design to be a little more efficient, but I, I'm, I'd love to hear more about um, you know, your research. Well, on my thoughts on a GATT system... Um... It's good and it's bad. Don't get me wrong. Um, if you're further south than me, a GAT system, or if you're in you know, BC in Canada, or you, know, you don't get severe winters like what we got here, a GAT system works great. But the problem that I see with GAT systems is that it comes along this philosophy of we can generate all the heat that we want from inside the greenhouse. Why? I mean, it's just as easy, uh, you know, it's maybe a little bit more, but to stick some sort of heat generating system like evacuated tubes outside your greenhouse um and does your heating battery have to be underneath your greenhouse sure you can gain a little bit of heat when it leaches up but it's also going to be super hot in the summer and it's going to give you some issues with maybe overheating a bit in the summer if you're feeding that gas system so i've always been on the idea that you can have your thermal battery outside of the greenhouse so that you can access it and you can go much bigger than the size of your greenhouse um, if you're outside of it, and it's easier to heat that. I like mixed with liquid systems, not air systems. I think that the, the heat transfer of a liquid system is much more efficient. And a simple down liquid system is actually not that expensive. I mean, it's just PEX, and evacuated tubes and some pumps. And if you're running that heat back into your greenhouse, especially if you have um, a cheap radiant floor, for the same dollars as putting together a GAT system, I could, using a liquid system that's outside with evacuated tubes, I mean, you're going to be within about 10% of your cost and you're going to get three times the amount of energy that you can use. And it's going to be even 
better in my mind because you can have it on a thermostat and completely control it within certain temperature ranges much better. So is a GAT system wrong? No, they work. But I've, I'm a big fan of a liquid system with a radiant floor and, and having the thermal battery outside of the greenhouse so that if something screws up, you can actually dig into it and deal with it. Whereas if it's in your greenhouse, your whole production and your whole system is done. Uh, you got to tear it all up. And, and I like serviceability. Did that make any sense? hundred percent. And that's been the biggest problem I've had with it is um, I've heard other people having mold issues with some of the deeper GAT systems, but we've always just taken, when we install them, we'll take a leaf blower when we do each layer, take potassium silicate or some other super high pH, um, you know, mineral powder and a leaf blower and just blast it in there to kind of leave a coating in there on the inside. And it's not perfect, but you know, you do have a little bit of static electric cling from the, from the plastic. And, they um, work. I'm not better than nothing. They don't work. But I, yeah, yeah. I, I'm of the opinion, if you're starting from scratch, look at trying to do some sort of a liquid-based system. Um, you're not that much more. You're in the same price range, and you, your efficiency is massively larger. I, was, I totally agree on that, for sure. And, and like I said, I also don't believe that you need to take all the I'd rather just vent the heat when I have too much. I don't think I need to take all the heat from my greenhouse to store it and heat it. I can get my heat from outside you know, from a evacuated tube or something else. Uh, like I said, I think it's a philosophy and a wrong philosophy. Unless you're in an area where you have so little space that this is the only place you can get your heat from, most people have enough room outside to put evacuated tube arrays or something like that that can generate a lot more heat than you'll ever get within your greenhouse itself. And hotter, which is better for storing. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, one of the other questions I had, one of the, my favorite videos on your channel is the geothermal air conditioning. Um, do you want to touch on that a little bit? We've talked about mostly for, for heat capacity, but, uh, uh well, I've, once, you know, it's a wonderful system on, and it's incredibly time. cheap to do that system, but you need good ground temperatures. I mean, yes, it'll work where you're at, but it will only take it so far. I mean, maybe a 10, 20 degree temperature difference where I live. It's massive. Cause I mean, in the summertime, you know, you're looking at eight to 10 degrees Celsius ground temperature. You just stick that to a car radiator, radiator with a fan behind it and pump the water through. <laughs> You've got incredibly cheap air conditioning that'll pump out the same or more than a large air conditioner for just the cost of running a fan and a taco pump. You know, 100, 150 watt maximum, and you've got a huge amount of cooling ability from that. So that's actually, I think, my most viewed video out there because it's so simple and so easy to put in. I mean, yeah, you, the biggest cost in that entire system is the excavator. And I mean, if you have access to a backhoe or an excavator, this is almost a few hundred dollars. That's it. I mean, they can be expensive to get an excavator or backhoe. I mean, you can look at a thousand or two thousand bucks, but I mean, if you're comparing something that could put out the same as a $500 air conditioner that costs two thousand bucks, but it'll never cost you anything electricity or so little electricity, it doesn't matter. This is something you need to look at because electric, electric companies are not lowering the prices. They're going up and up and up as we go forward. And even if you generate your own, you don't have to generate very much for this system. Like I say, a fan and a taco pump don't require much of a solar generation system to run 24 hours, even with a couple batteries on it. So that, that system be... in itself is nice. Awesome. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. There's a little bit of a time with, with uh, the you know, opposite sides of the planet. So I apologize. <laughs> no worries. That's uh, 930 so. here now, actually. 
Uh, the, um, oh, you're on. Uh, you're on Central. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, so the the sand uh, sand uh, your sand video is one of my other favorites from your YouTube channel. Um, you want to touch a little bit on on using sand and you know as a thermal battery because uh, it's definitely one of the more interesting videos. Uh, well, once again, uh, the reason that sand is a wonderful idea as a thermal battery is cost. I mean, yes, water is cheaper, but then there's the containment. So if you want to contain an enormous amount of water to do seasonal heating, you're looking at large storage containers. We're not talking 1,500 gallon, we're talking 15,000 gallon. And although the water is free to cheap, that storage container is going to cost an enormous amount of money. Whereas sand is cheap. Uh, I mean, even if you have to buy it, if you don't have it readily available, you can get, well, here I can get 18 yards of sand for under 500 bucks from a semi delivered to where we're going to go. And sand can hold a lot of heat and it can hold heat beyond the boiling point of water, which is actually pretty cool. If you don't want to look at an evacuated tube, but a concentrated solar type system to store it, suddenly you can start storing heat in the 200, 300 or more degrees Celsius range. And that's cool uh, if you want to look at it. So sand has a lot of possibilities, not because it's for size and what it can store for uh, energy, but because water in, in many ways is better other than the high temperature, but sand is cheap and it's cheap to have the storage facility. I mean, you can put an aircrete type uh, insulation around it that's got some leaks and whatever, as long as you've got some insulation around it and you're going to do fantastic for long-term heat storage or seasonal type heat storage. So, you know, when I look at thermal batteries, yes, water is great, but most thermal batteries use clay or sand, depending on what's available in your area, um, because of cost and availability. And you don't have to have that hugely expensive storage container that you need for water to use water to store heat. Water is great to store heat in smaller amounts, like a 55-gallon barrel and a few dozen of them along the north wall of your greenhouse. Yes, that works. And But as soon as you start getting into... 2,000, 5,000, 20,000 gallons of water, you're looking at some big dollars for storage. Does that make sense? Absolutely, but it definitely uh, sounds like a great way to, to use that for thermal storage, just about, you know, in terms of cost effectiveness might, might be easier than just about anything else in terms of, you know, global well, access. Depends on your size. A, a very small greenhouse, you know, 55 gallon drums would work great with water in them, but start getting a little bigger and you have to, it gets tight on the wall and you got to look at other solutions. <laughs> Very cool. Um, we have one or two more questions left here. Um, uh, uh, we had uh, domes versus uh, greenhouse bays. Uh, I know that you've done a lot of great videos on both of these. Um, I'd love to kind of hear your, your general thoughts on that. And if you want long form, he has really great videos on both of these topics on his YouTube channel. So, so basically I'm assuming it means like domes versus a Quonset hut type greenhouse. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, I have a dome here. I love it because I have an RV park and it looks cool. You pull up here at night. I have lights in it and it looks like something, you know, some sort of spaceship or whatever. It, it, the visual appeal of domes is fantastic. The functionality of domes sucks. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that straight out as someone that has one and uses one. I like domes just because I like cool shit. Um, if you want to do more growing and if you want to have better control of your systems as well as a thermal blanket, you need to run with the Quonset hut idea, um, a long greenhouse. It's going to give you 
much better options by way of a north wall that's insulated. It's going to give you a thermal blanket that you can put in there. Things like that. Uh, even better ventilation on the top, which is more difficult on a dome. It can be done, but once again, when you sheet it over with double air inflated plastic, that becomes more of an issue. So if you're in this for a commercial reason for growing, my advice is don't do a dome. If you have want a cool feature that people pull up with up to your place at night and see and it looks really cool and it stands out like I have in my RV park, the dome's awesome for that. Um, that's my two cents on the two different types. Mind if I uh, ask a question there, Colton? Um, sure. And any uh, tips on dealing with snow load? Yeah, you want the strongest structure you can for what is available for snow load in your area. Um, one of the things I found with a dome is that domes are stronger. Um, as I mentioned before, when I built a dome versus a Quonset hut of the same material, one wouldn't hold itself up. The other one will hold a big fat fucker like me off of it. You know. Uh, it's amazing how much strength you get out of a dome, but it also comes down to functionality. Um, you want to build, if you're in a high snow load area, you want to build in a manner that will shed that snow from the top of your building. That's my two cents of it. Um, Colorado, of course, gets massive amounts of snows where the other host is from, and that's an issue in buildings. So you have to be aware of where you are and, what you need and especially if your local building inspectors get involved so it's a function of location climate and what you can do to be safe in that climate so yeah it's a good question um i've never had an issue my dome's been up what four or five years now and it hasn't had an issue with snow load but it tends to you know, we've had not Colorado snows, but we've had a foot of snow on it, but it tends to fall off it fairly quickly. On the other side of the coin, if I do see a lot of snow on it, I get out there with a rake and I take it off really quick. But that happens maybe once a season where I live. Hopefully that answers your question. <laughs> I can't hear you. I'm sorry. Sorry, my power oh, just came back on and it suddenly turned my other camera on and my. Okay, my sorry, television. I didn't hear your friend's last, what he was saying there. Oh, I, I, sorry, yeah. No, I had, I was, my, I was muted there. I wasn't saying anything. I was just saying, no, you know, you, you covered it pretty much, I guess. Um, I'm in Northern Alberta, so it's definitely something I have to think about when, if I'm building a greenhouse or whatnot. You're probably in a similar climate to what I have here in. Manitoba. I'm about an hour north of Winnipeg. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm, I'm about Edmonton. Okay. Yeah. They're, they're okay. very similar climates. Yeah. You guys get that uh, swarm of mosquitoes that I'll never miss. <laughs> Are there no mosquitoes in Thailand? So we have mosquitoes here. So, like uh, in the tropics, this is the general issue deal with, with mosquitoes in the tropics. So, and, and he can tell you this from living in Antigua because he grew up in Antigua. So the sun goes down between 6 and 6.30, depending on what time of year here, and same thing in the Caribbean. Um, sometimes it's a little bit later, I think, in the Caribbean, it's slightly farther north. But right about 30 minutes before the sun goes down, the mosquitoes wake up, and they start to come out. And you close all the windows on the house, 
And then about 8, 30, 9 o'clock, you can open the windows back up because they're really bad for about two, two and a half hours. And then they all kind of settle down for the night. So yeah, that, that's, that's really the trick to it. But yeah, we, we do get uh, pretty good storms, but not until the rains come back. It's the dry season, although today it's cloudy. It hasn't rained since November here. And uh, oh, wow. it might rain. <laughs> which is pretty wild. It's not supposed to rain this time of year. So. But definitely can also be a problem. Um, yeah, I think are huge here. You can shoot them with a 22. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I've been to northern Quebec during the swarm season. It's just not fun. Not fun at all. Um, have you found any other unique ideas that maybe you haven't had a chance to explore yet? Um, you know, just something oddball, off the wall, or just a lot different than anything one of the things i've been looking at quite a bit recently is the idea of 3d printers with making a lot of the things that are necessary especially in hydroponic type growing operations i mean there's so many little things um little parts and things like that that a person can actually make and or find online because the 3d printers have all these um things you can find on uh how do we say this plans or schematics that you can plug in and, and make yourself is that it's changing a lot of what's available for parts in areas like, especially for you in Thailand, where, you know, it can be harder to get things for what's there, but if you can get a 3d printer with, you know, enough resin, you can make what you need at a high level right there. Bang. I you know, have it done. Just have it set and just keep cranking it out. And it's something that I've just started looking into that I think is actually really cool and changing. I mean, of course, there's 3D printers that can build whole structures and, and, and things like that, but that's big dollars. But when we're talking the three dollars to $500 3D printer, it's amazing what you can do for parts for an aquaponic or hydroponic type system uh, yourself. And, and it's changing a lot of things for small growers that this is now an option to have things built exactly how they need them or their operation from a 3D printer. So we had a, a question from chat. This is from American one. It says, can one use a hot water coil and a forced air furnace as a cold water coil to cool the air at potent ponics? Think radiators, not, not coil. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm gonna tell you. You can get cheap radiators, go to a car record and just get you know a, a great big radiator from an old Lincoln or whatever huge car. Um, they're way cheaper. They do exactly, the coil doesn't give you enough energy out. Radiators do. Um, even new ones are not that expensive, but like I say, all auto wreckers and they're available everywhere in North America and Europe and probably even Thailand. You can get them cheap and they'll, you know, you just attach the pumps to them and away you go and it'll, it'll pump out way more hot or cold from a liquid system than any coil will ever do. You just put yeah, the only, the only luck I've had with coils and, and this is so an, Oklahoma, the groundwater is not very hot. I mean, the ground's pretty warm in Oklahoma. Uh, and uh, the only luck we had with it was on one of the facilities I was at doing the geothermal coils, we, we had a really deep pond that was like the farm pond that was there as a backup water source that was like 40, 50, 60 feet deep. I don't, I don't know how deep it was. It was very, very deep for, for how wide it was. And we just sunk the coils to the bottom of that where the water was very cold. And that ended up being a pretty good heat exchanger. But, you know, if you have access to a deep lake or pond near. Yes, 100%. Those work well. Option. Yeah. I mean, but do you need to have it in a coil? You could basically just get a whole bunch of pecs, 
that's you yeah. know wound up and drop it down there and get the exact same effect sure you don't necessarily have to go to a copper coil to get the same thing and, and copper is not oh, cheap oh yeah no we ended up using um you know the gas line that has the yellow plastic on the outside okay get it like low the the, the metal coated pecs we did yeah. that and stripped plastic off and that was the cheap ish solution not not the cheapest but not expensive like copper is <laughs> the thermal exchange as i remember on that stuff was really really good too that was one of yeah. the reasons that you guys went for that stuff and you just need yeah. more length if you have more length you're going to get the thermal exchange as the water goes through it absolutely the other thing too is to make sure you have an expansion tank on it i've seen people build these before and then blast them apart once they heat them up because they don't put an expansion tank uh, here's on. an interesting thing in regards to an expansion tank i use a wood boiler and we have to add water to it, obviously, as the water boils off a bit. But what's amazing is that if for some reason you lose heat, which happens every once in a while with a wood boiler, the wood falls wrong, it doesn't burn, da 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 da. And it goes from internal temperature in the water jacket of about 160, 170 degrees Fahrenheit, and it'll drop down to 100 degrees Fahrenheit. The amount of water difference in volume will be, in my boiler alone, will be five gallons. And that's just an expansion contraction difference in the water itself by temperature. And people think, oh, well, water stays the same size. No, water expands and contracts depending upon how hot or cold it is massively. And exactly what you said, you need an expansion tank. You're right. You absolutely, in, water, in liquid systems, you have to have an ability for that somehow to expand and contract based upon temperature. Uh, we had really good luck with, we ended up replacing all the water in our system, at least at the test greenhouse in Colorado with glycol. Um, and basically go to the, go to your local RV place and tell them you have, you know, a couple of RVs and a boat that you need to winterize and buy the giant drum of the, the winterizing stuff. And then pour that into your, um, your, your coil system. One, it won't freeze. So if the thing shuts off or whatever, you're not going to blow the lines out. And then two, it does it has it will expand and contract, but the expansion and contraction is less than water. Um, so you have it's less of a, a push and pull on the expansion tanks. So. Yeah, and the non-freezing is fantastic with glycol, and it's not super expensive either. So that's actually a really good thing to mention. I would really recommend that in most liquid systems is to actually have them with glycol because you don't get the same, you do get some evaporation, but it's nowhere near the same amount of evaporation you're going to run with water. Absolutely. Well, um, I don't want to keep you too long. I know it's starting to get pretty late there. Um, any other things that you wanted to mention here uh, on your um, about your channel? Anything else you want to mention as far as tips or tricks? And, uh, and like if I you said, guys haven't already, be sure to check out his channel, uh, uh, Simple Tech, if, especially, you know, we, he has such long in-depth uh, videos on all the different topics that we've talked about today, um, you know, tons of different, uh, you know, views and angles on these different types of things, lots of different designs. Uh, it's just, again, one you of need my a place favorite to grow your pot. My channel is the place to find it. <laughs> I'm going to check it out because you're really close to my environment. So I'm definitely going to be checking it out. There's a lot of things you're going to find will be very interesting for where you live in Alberta that that's going to work for it. Um, I, I would particularly in Alberta, look at some of the things like the Chinese greenhouse designs okay. um, and enhanced Chinese greenhouse designs for our climate. They work really well. Okay. I'll check that out. And tell us about, tell us about that vehicle. Cause that's just awesome. Oh, that was just a fun day. Um, I live on the lake on Lake Manitoba. So it's a large lake. Um, 
you know, we're lakefront here. If you look out, you can't see the other side. So it freezes right across in the winter and they have an ice fishing. This is a commercial ice fishing um, vehicle. They made these Bombardier Company, which makes the snowmobiles and the jets and all that. They made these back in the 50s and they only made them for like four or five years. Uh, they were made up north basically as buses to run people around. But what happened was commercial fishermen here found they were the absolute best vehicle for going commercial fishing with. Now, some fishermen use things like snowmobiles, and but they're cold. And the ATVs don't have the same kind of capacity or the tracks aren't as good. The tr like the bombardiers you're looking at there, each one of those is on its third or fourth motor. And there's piles of them around here that the fishermen use. And they love them because they have such a light footprint for the ice. And, you know, they basically, they go and they drill holes in the ice and they go fishing with them. This was, um, like I said, this isn't a greenhouse video. This was just a fun video because I have lots of friends that go commercial fishing. And, I, I, you <laughs> know, they awesome. took me out one day to go with them and I had a great time. It's <laughs> you know, freaking sweet. I just got to say, like, that is just a really cool vehicle. So if you look at when he was drilling there, it goes down. Um, that year when we did that, I think there was four feet of ice. You could drive your car anywhere on the lake and it wouldn't be an issue. Uh, but the nice thing about the bombardiers is that they have tracks so they can go over any amount of snow and you're not getting stuck. I mean, sure, it looks like you can run across that with your four by four car, but there's a lot of drifts that get thick and you're just going to get stuck. Whereas these things like a snowmobile just run over everything. They got skis, they got long tracks. And, and like I said, they're all from the fifties, but they just keep them running and because they, they haven't made them since. And anything that the manufacturers have tried to make, they've tried to do things like put tracks on trucks, well, they wind up being heavier. So they can't go out in the earlier seasons or they don't work as well in the thick ice because there's four tracks and not two. They were just the best material, the best vehicle ever made for ice fishing on the, the lakes that we have here. Yeah, you can see them drilling away there and uh, it's amazing how deep he has to go to find the water. That's great, man. I just, I saw that and I had to ask because it's such a cool. It was a great cool. video and it was a great time going out there. I, I love seafood and these guys go, primarily they're looking for pickerel, uh, which is some people call walleye. And that's yeah, the, the big fish. commercial. That's nice stuff. So that's the prime commercial uh, catch. And you'll see through the video how they set the nets and how they pull the nets and, uh, you know, what, what he does in regards to. Uh, so the hole that he dug there is actually where one of the there's another hole 100 yards away and there's a net that runs underneath it and they just pull the ropes in between the two of them it's really cool that's really neat uh and again tractor videos too on there but <laughs> yeah so be sure to check out his his content he has a lot of great videos on there uh, lots of different topics on, on all different types of things but uh, especially if you're looking for climate control design is some of the best examples, especially if you're trying to save money. And then there's something that's easy to understand if you aren't really you know, heavy into this every day. So they're very digestible for people that are just getting started. So it's one of the other reasons why I wanted to make sure we brought him on and, and highlighted his videos because there aren't a lot of great resources for this type of stuff that's out there in a way that's easy for the average person to, to understand. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity and I love talking to you guys. I, if you ever want me back, just give me a shout. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk to your people. And uh, I had a great time today. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, we're very happy to have you and we'd love to have you back again soon. Maybe maybe have you on the uh, the conference next year as uh, uh, speaking on the greenhouse design. That would be great. I'd love that. 
thank you again. And I hope you guys have a, I don't know if it's, well, I know in Alberta, you're getting close to the evening. I don't know what time of day it is in Thailand right now. Oh, it is currently uh, almost 11 a.m. here. So. Okay. Well, not <laughs> almost lunchtime. <laughs> thank you very much, guys. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And uh, be sure again to check out his YouTube channel, uh, Simple Tech. Again, one of my favorite YouTube channels when it comes to uh, greenhouse design and geothermal design and just a, a whole bunch of wonderful different ideas. So be sure to check it out if you haven't already. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Take care. Alrighty, everybody. And uh, I'm going to actually, I forgot I made a video for this. What did I do with it? Sorry. I've had a lot of, if you go back and check out the, um, the show from yesterday on that smoke show, you can see we have a a lot of stuff going on here at the farm, a lot of construction, and I'm, I'm moving on Saturday, so. Actually yeah, no, I'm gonna own. definitely check out some more of your stuff. Thank you again. I really appreciated the opportunity to talk on that. Oh yeah. Thanks a lot for joining us. Cheers. Thank you guys. All right, I'm getting, I got a whole bunch of stuff I gotta do before the end of the evening here, so. Sure, right. yeah, have a good one. Is Thank you. Uh, I'm gonna play the little video that I made here. Uh, real quick for you guys, uh, if I can figure out how to make it load properly on this. Again, I do apologize, guys. That's really that was really good. I really like what he did. I like how he keeps uh, costs low on everything. That's yeah. Uh, that especially with the way the markets are changing and going right now. Um, Yeah, he's one of my favorite, again, one of my favorite YouTube channels, especially if you're looking to, to understand how geothermal climate control works, how, um, you know, different types of greenhouse design works, how, uh, you know, uh, wallapinis work, a lot of these different ideas that you hear people talk about, he has them all broken down in a very scientific way that's easy to understand and explains the science side of it and how many degrees of a difference you're going to get. So you actually can make a proper decision on how to approach these different problems. So um, be sure to check him out if you haven't already. All right, this should work. There we go. Playing the audio. I feel like it's not playing the audio. I don't hear any audio. Fuck. Huh. Well, I guess that's not going to work then. Let's see if this one works. No, that's not it. Apparently, we have a problem with the video playback system. One moment, guys. I apologize. Take three. No, still no, still no audio. All right, well, we will work on that again for next episode. I was trying to do a little video outro. Oh, wait, did I move it to the other folder? That might've been the problem. Ah, yes, that's the problem. Okay, I'm sorry, I moved the proper file. This is my fault.
Here we go. If you're looking for more education on aquaponic cannabis, please consider the aquaponic cannabis masterclass at apmjclass.com, featuring over seven days of in-depth, hands-on educational content with Marty Waddell and Stephen Reisner as your guides through the aquaponic cannabis universe. We'll cover everything from construction of large commercial facilities, home size systems, backyard systems, nutrients, pest control, diseases, everything you can think of, and, uh, and so much more. So be sure to check that out at apmjclass.com. And if you're looking for aquaponic cannabis or living soil uh, pest control courses, please check out uh, thepestclass.com where we have a huge in-depth course on pest control, how to make your own um, biocontrols, as well as in-depth guides and identification guides for a whole slew of different pests that you may encounter in your aquaponics garden. And it's not strictly just geared towards cannabis, uh, it's also geared towards vegetables as well. So be sure to check that out if it's something you think you might need to improve in your education. All right. Gotta enjoy having the, uh, working on getting a few more pre-recorded things for the show, make it a little cleaner. Uh, especially once I move, I'll be able to set up at my full office again and, uh, and I'll have a little more time to, uh, to work on stuff. So yeah, excited. Anyways, um, anything else you wanted to mention here, Wes, before we uh, wrap things up? You're muted. No, I'm good, man. And I hope everybody's well as well. Yeah. Thanks everybody for watching in chat. Be sure to hit the like and subscribe. Uh, also check out our other show, Dat Smoke Show, D-A-T uh, Smoke Show. We do that on Wednesdays. Uh, it's a little bit different format. This is more of a science you know, focused interview type show. Uh, the other show is more of a hang out with your friends kind of show. We, you know, originally had the show kind of where it started off with an interview and transitioned. Um, I think it works much better with it being two different, different shows, different, different vibes, um, yeah, you know, absolutely. completely to the shows. So I think it works much better. So if you want to hear us just kind of bullshit and uh, talk, talk about, about different uh, gross stuff and sometimes random other things, <laughs> um, go check out a Dat Smoke show. Uh, on Wednesdays, and then uh, we have this show on Thursdays. All right, guys, thanks a lot for watching. Find us SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, all the things. Uh, we'll be again. We'll, we'll be back again next week. Next week we have Kanatai uh, Seeds and his wife. Uh, she's going to go over all of her different like Thai natural farming preparations and recipes with us on on her different um, Thailand. Uh, you know, ferments and, and various other preparations. So super stoked on that. And um, yeah, looking forward to that. I'll have some cool new videos for you guys coming out in the next couple of weeks, working on all kinds of new stuff here in Thailand. Um, everything's really scaling up quickly here. We're about to go from about 3,000 plants to uh, 14,000 plants here in the next uh, week or and a half, so <laughs> two weeks. So That's scaling. <laughs> yeah uh, we have uh, all of our new greenhouses are just about finished and uh, all of those will uh, get transitioned uh, into uh, into that so it'll be fun we're gonna see what's gonna happen and uh, yeah I'm excited we're about to, to finally start pushing stuff and uh, if you're in the Bangkok or, or Pattaya 
the end of the month, let me know. Uh, I got I do a business trip down there. So um, let me know. We'll be in the area. All right, guys. Take it easy. We'll catch you guys again next week. Peace.